Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here. I really appreciate it. Welcome to the special edition of the Chicago Justice Project show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You want to find more information about our work, you can go to chicagojustice.org. So today is the launch of our town hall series, which we'll be doing once a month. Very serious topic today titled Reimagining a New Paradigm of Rape Kit Transparency. If you're joining us from Illinois, it's no surprise that for now, sadly, a couple of decades, the Illinois State Police Crime Lab has had a significant issue processing rape kits in a timely fashion, known as the backlog. The time it takes for a kit to get tested has fluctuated, and they said they've had the, I think it's at least twice now they've said they've eliminated the backlog. At times over the last 20 years or so, it's taken at least two years, sometimes even more. My opinion, in my words, we'll see what the panelists think. That's an abomination. That should not be allowed to happen. The Illinois General, General Assembly has, over the last 10 years or so, taken actions um, to try to reduce or eliminate the backlog, including one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. The state police has implemented, I think, last August or September, which was a year late, if I'm not mistaken, implemented a tracking system where survivors who have evidence collected and put in what's called a rape kit or a sexual assault kit can now uh, securely go online and track, supposedly track the status of their kits. We'll get into the logistics of that tonight and whether or not it's being done at all hospitals and whether it's being done through the state or if it's just a Chicago thing. Either way, from CJP's perspective, the reason we're here tonight is that we think that is not good enough. We think that open data, data that the justice agencies produce can be used to greatly shed light on that entire process from every policing agency throughout the state, but especially Chicago, because that's our concentration. We want to know what's going on. We want to know where the kits are. We want to know what the backlog is. We think all of that is answerable um, using data created by the agencies. Also with understanding, as we have always done in all our transparency work, is we want to provide ahead of time a... Um, we want to center survivors. We want to make sure that their privacy is absolutely guaranteed. But at the same time, we don't want to let the justice system, and I'll ask the panelists about this shortly, in our experiences, they have exploited um, survivors um, and their privacy to shield everything they do. So you can't possibly look at any of their data because it will somehow invade someone's privacy. Um, we don't think that's... Um, True, but we also and we also think it um, somehow limits survivors and their advocates because they can't advocate for better practices because they can't figure out what's actually going on. So, with that context, I'm going to give you a little biographical information about our three panelists we have today. So, our, um, first up, Maria Balada, who's the director of advocacy, director of advocacy services at Resilience. I know she's going to correct me when I get this wrong. Uh, Ilsa, is that correct? Did I pronounce it right? Ilsa, great, connect. She's Director of Policy and Advocacy at Joyful Heart Foundation. And Donna Plyer, who is the Program Manager at Guardian Angel Community Services. I think they're located in Joliet, if I remember everything right. Yes, I got it right. Okay, well, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. So we're going to go, Maria, we're going to start with you. Can you paint a picture for our viewers? What kind of impact does the backlog of uh, a rape kit not being tested, sometimes over the last 20 years, for as much as two years, what does that do to a survivor? Yeah, thanks, Tracy. And thank you for the invitation to be here today. As it relates to the length of time that it has taken historically for those kit results to come in, um, that has great impact on survivors. Typically, the survivors that we serve that choose to access the criminal justice system, they're looking for some means of accountability, um, and they're hoping that through this process, they'll be able to access some means of healing as it relates to the experience that they've had. And it's difficult, if you can imagine, for someone to rely on a system to hold someone accountable when so often the systems are reliant um, on those kit results 
to make decisions about whether or not there's enough evidence to move this case forward. So historically, and I've been with the agency um, for the better part of the last decade, um, this incredible length of time that it's taken for these kit results to come in, come in means that not only um, do survivors have to wait for that accountability, but it really oftentimes keeps folks from being able to feel like they can move on, like they can start the healing process when they're simply still stuck and waiting to get a decision. Of course, as your listeners know, statistically, the majority of the cases will not be charged. Um, and most recently, the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation released a critical report um, that showed that less than 10% um, of sexual assault res- reports resulted in an arrest. So statistically, we know that this is already unlikely. And when we're working with our, our clients, um, survivors, we prep them for the reality that this may be also the case in their situation. But just imagine being stuck in this holding pattern where you don't have an answer, where kit results are pending, and without the information Um, The state's attorney's office often is not in a place where they feel ready to determine whether or not they can approve charges. And so this really um, hinders survivors from adapting to this new, this new normal often is is what that's described as, you know, their, their hope is to heal from this experience. But how do you do that when there's still something hanging over your head that you're waiting to find out what's going to happen with it? So definitely speediness with this process. It's something that I think is really critical if our hope is to get people to a healing place. Okay, we're going to turn that. Say, um, I want you to give us. You have more of a national perspective. So I talked about this years of backlogs in Chicago. I think we had once famously Rod, our former governor, former prisoner, now pardoned prisoner, uh, Rod Bogoyevich say. I think he came out and did a press conference years ago that the that the backlog was gone. Um, and then I right, and then that kind of I think then his replacement after he got convicted came out and said no, it didn't go anywhere. Um, so how does Chicago's history stack up to what's going on nationally over the last twenty years? How 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 bad is Illinois? Are we just like run of the mill, or is this just really really bad here? Um, okay, well, first of all, I want to say I'm from Illinois, born, born in right. Illinois, so um, <laughs> I. <laughs> Uh, so Chicago and the state of Illinois, there, there are sort of two different things going on. Um, Illinois as a state has has done some really great things, legislatively in particular. And Illinois was actually the first state in the country to pass rape kit reform laws. So um, we've always kind of said, you know, Illinois was the first. Did, and, and the legislators continuously are tweaking those bills and, and adding layers, which is great. You know, they have mandatory testing and then came back, I think, in 2016 and did some mandatory training for law enforcement, uh, trauma-informed training for law enforcement. Um, and even up till today, you know, we're, we're working on a bill that would, would make sure that survivors are informed about the rape kit tracking system, because right now there's, they're not, nobody has to tell them about that. So, there's just, there has been a kind of consistent level of reform, but then you get to Chicago and it's um, really unclear to us what is going on, actually. We have issued Freedom of Information Act requests to the department to find out what their number of untested kits are. Maybe they don't have any, but they um, haven't fully responded to our request, uh, sent us a spreadsheet that really didn't make sense, but then we could just really not get anybody on the phone who could explain it to us. Um, so it has been very, um, the lack of transparency is, uh, is certainly there. Um, and so it just has been kind of a strange dynamic where the state has actually, you know, done a fair amount of work. Um, and, and then Chicago has sort of just Set it seems like in the same place and is is really kind of closed off to sharing information. Yeah, I am shocked to hear the Chicago Police Department is not sharing information. Yeah. Um, I would call your attention, you know, the, the viewers' attention. The Inspector General's office has done a slew of reports over the last twelve months of CPD's policies around tracking information, and it's astoundingly bad. Their systems internally are so bad. They can't even tell 
they have no way, they don't have a system in place that they can tell that they're actually honoring subpoenas correctly. And that's right? what we found with, with the report that they sent, did send us um, about rape kits. It made no sense. Um, and actually, if we read it, the way it came to us, it would have looked like there were, you know, almost 10,000 untested rape kits or something to that effect. So it was just this is sort of the opposite of, of um, anything useful. Yes, that's when you do get information out of them. That's what we get. We got we got metadata on 18, 18 years of calls for service. The first nine years, they gave us 13% of the calls that their annual report says. And in the next nine years, they averaged 145%. So if someone can tell me how you get 145% of something, like physically, that's actually impossible. One year, we have 198% of the calls that they said they had. So it, trusting their data is a whole nother thing. Even when they send you it, trusting it's a chaos. Okay, um, Donna, we're going to come to you on this question. I mentioned a little bit in the intro. We have been constantly confronted in our transparency work when we engage justice agencies as privacy, privacy, privacy. We can't release anything because of privacy. And you're mean and you're just trying to expose um, survivors and witnesses and you're just horrible. And uh, whenever we have gone to do this, we always ask upfront for de-identified data um, to make sure that we're not doing that because that is the last thing we want to do. In in your work, have you seen that? Do you think that is something where the agencies are, are to one extent or another, exploiting survivors? Am I just totally wrong on this? What, what's your view? You've been doing this for a few years. I, I've been doing this for about 24 years. And I still work with survivors on a daily basis. And first, I'm going to say confidentiality, that is penultimate when you're working with survivors we make a promise to them as a rape crisis center that everything they tell us is confidential. Um, and I think they rely on that heavily. And we also like to make sure that if they want something released, they understand what it means. You know, what would be the benefit of it? What would be the detriment? And if they want it done, we support what they want. And I think we're pretty transparent in the numbers and reporting to authorities on what we do. I don't always feel like um, we get the same kind of information back from police departments. My perspective is a little different because I don't deal with the city of Chicago on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I deal with Will County and Grundy County and occasionally Kendall. And I still don't think we get information <laughs> on the level that I would like. but. I honestly don't work in those organizations, but I really think um, it should be easier to get information on how many untested kits there are statewide. And that is a hard number to get. And I think it should not be so difficult to be able to help a client understand that there are this many kits, you know, sitting on a shelf and yours is one of them. And it's very important that it get through, but because yours is one of them, it's not going to get through very quickly. Yeah, I've been shocked. You would think that that would be an easy number for them to report. They could just drop in an annual report. It's not a complicated number to get. I mean, I don't know if there's any data for them and what they do is complicated to get, but counting the number of things sitting on a shelf should be um, pretty simple, even for the Chicago police. Okay. Um, I could complain all night about it. Maria, we're going to come back to you. So the state legislator mandated, that mandated this tracking system that the Illinois State Police has put out in August. Um, can you tell our audience about how it works um, and what is the depth of information that is actually on there? And what do you think, if anything, is missing? Yeah, that's a great question. So the tracking system itself is relatively simple. So what happens is when you have a survivor of sexual violence that seeks care in any emergency room in the Chicago or in the state of Illinois, um, if that hospital is a treatment hospital, that hospital will offer an evidence collection kit to anyone who's in the hospital within seven days of the incident. If that patient chooses to have an evidence collection kit, aka a rape kit done, um, then the hospital will, um, at uh, discharge, will provide the patient with two important um, identifications. One is a K number. 
um, that they will use to access that tracking system. And the second thing that they're going to get is a PIN number. So they'll get a K number and a PIN number, K for kit, right? Um, and a PIN number. Using that information, then um, that survivor will be able to log in to the checkpoint system. That's what the system is called. Um, using that information, they'll be able to type that in and they'll be able to identify where in the, the uh, analysis process the kit currently is. So one of the important conversation points that we have with our clients is making sure that we're managing expectations around what data they can actually get from that system. So in other words, think about the system as truly trying to um, provide information so that we're, we don't have the situations that we had, you know, in, in Detroit a few years ago where kids were sitting in a closet in a police station that were just forgotten about for decades. So they will have be able to track where in the process. Is it still at the hospital? Has it been picked up by the local law enforcement agency? Has local law enforcement agency handed it over to the evidence um, techs? Is it now at the warehouse waiting to be tested? Is it now been sent to the lab, etc.? So think of it as, you know, similar to an Amazon tracking where you can see where your package is along the line. Um, the same information is available there. What's not available, and this is where the managing expectations comes in, um, are the kit results. Kit results will not be available in that system. The system will tell um, the survivor that kit results are ready, that the analysis, the report has been completed, and they would then need to contact their detective or local law enforcement um, to access those results if that is something that they wish to do. Um, so what's missing from there? Um, that's an important question. So when we participated, when my agency participated um, in the inception of this system, there were a couple of things that that came to mind to us um, that we felt was important um, that maybe didn't make it into that system. And one is that while I use the analogy of an Amazon tracking um, or a package that we all do anyway, um, this isn't an Amazon package, right? We are talking about samples that were collected from a person's body from what they might describe as the most difficult day in their life. And so there's a lot of emotional um, charged feelings around seeing this process and being able to track it. It is important that survivors have some level of information, um, but I would have liked to see um, that that system had information on how someone can contact um, a crisis counselor 24 hours a day. Um, we have uh, hotlines that are available in the different areas. We have one in the Chicago area, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I think would have been important. Similarly, um, I think it would have been important for there to also be information on where folks can get advocacy services so that mm -hmm. if they are utilizing that kid tracking system, that they can um, know that there is help if, if this is a system they're unfamiliar with and they would like to receive support. So I think a little bit of that trauma-informed lens that yes, transparency is important and survivors deserve that, but this isn't some generic piece of information. This is something that's attached with a lot of feeling and somebody to be able to unpack what that means with them and hold those feelings with them, I think would be really important. Um, one of the things that in the, the tracking system, Tracy, that I would add um, that while this is available, um, with all new systems, there's going to be some drawbacks. Um, there's going to be a learning curve. And so while this is a process that can be tracked, if you log in with that information, there are a lot of entities that are still um, getting registered on the system, or maybe they're registered. When I say entities, I mean hospitals, law enforcement, et cetera. Um, they, they may be registered on the system, but they don't know yet how to use it. So I've also um, worked with survivors where we have their their K number, we have their PIN number. We're assisting them in, in understanding the information that's there, but there may not be a whole lot of information because perhaps the local law enforcement agency didn't know how to use it just yet. So um, as you mentioned in your introduction, this is a new system. It's been around mm -hmm. since last fall. And so I think we're still in that learning curve stage. Mm -hmm. Donna, what, what, if any, cons do you see in the system or what needs improvement in the system? Well, as Maria said, the, the kit tracking system is relatively new to this date, and I think we're still working it out. It was a result of a collaborative effort to get something in place so that survivors had some sense of what was going on with their kit. And they you know, didn't wonder if it got accidentally dumped in a garbage can or 
forgotten or lost in a closet or, and all of these things could happen. So I think that part of it, letting them know that it's actually being processed has been a benefit. Um, and it is set up just to track where kids are and that's what it does for those that are trackable. But I agree with Maria so completely that it can be traumatizing just to know that piece of yourself has been sitting on a warehouse shelf for months and months and months. And wouldn't it be good if you had some little piece of information easily available on here's a hotline. There are hotlines throughout the state. Um, and it's not that hard to find the numbers. But if you don't know where to look, if you don't know the system, if this is the first time you've ever experienced anything like this, it becomes so much more difficult. And there's not a guide there to help you. So just putting information that would help a survivor and would humanize the process. We understand you're a person. We understand this can be painful. And here's an opportunity for you to talk to somebody. No obligation, no cost. And I think that is such an important message. Um, and it's just the process that they go through to provide the evidence kit. I don't think you can underestimate how difficult that is. They've just gone through one of the worst experiences of their lives. And now what you're going to do is have an exam that in many ways pokes and prods into that experience, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and probably at the worst time for it. But I think the support is lacking there, being able to give them the help that they should have a right to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that all makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I got to tell you, I'm learning from this conversation because it wouldn't have dawned on me to have advocate numbers and, ser and, and service numbers that they could call. That would not have dawned on me. So, mm -hmm. Tracy, yeah. they do that in other states. So uh, systems have, have that kind of information in other states. I would think it would be pretty simple. I don't know the system that Illinois is using very well, but it seems like it would be pretty simple to add something like that. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, and that's, I would, that was my next question, actually, Ilsa, to you, which is, are there are there um, some um, other projects like this around the country that stand out in, to you that you would say, hey, this is a best practice or this is the one that's doing it the best or these three are or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, there are 30 states and D.C. that are using tracking systems right now, so there are a lot of them. And there are a couple of different vendors. You know, you ha always have um, a state lab like like Illinois that would maybe kind of create their own. Um, but several vendors that have maybe um, different bells and whistles, you know, if, if um, that makes sense. And so some are a little bit more um, complete, kind of out of the box, where you just kind of plug it in and it's, it includes... The package includes uh, like technical assistance. What happens if a law enforcement officer is trying to enter a kit into the tracking system at 2 a.m., you know, and it won't work or a survivor is trying to log on and they can't, they can't get it. Then there are some systems that have that kind of 24 hour, basically technical assistance. Cause how frustrating would that be as a survivor, right? To the, like, Oh, I can't log in. Great. Who do, who do I talk to? Right. Who do I call? Um, and you want to know that that person you're going to call is trained in trauma. It's, so you're going to talk to some random person about how I'm trying to track my sexual assault kid. Um, you know, so there are other kinds of, I think, um, protections that need to be built into the system for survivors. And there are um, several companies that kind of the main companies that are, um, are creating these tracking systems that have like I said, some of these um, additional kinds of um, support systems for survivors. Okay, so I'm going to open this up to the group and just chime in. One of the things we're interested in, CJP is interested in, is looking at or creating a system that tracks these kits, but in a way that we can aggregate up and look to see if there's disparities, right? So 
my, I guess my first question is, Anne looks at every step and looks at if there is ideally, if there is um, uh, genetic material and there is a DNA hit, do they search CODIS? If there's a CODIS hit, is there, it goes back to the police department, is there an arrest? Is there a prosecution? Um, and whether or not there's a way of tracking all of that data, um, you know, is there a way to do that and still center it um, to help survivors and empower them and the advocates and keep the privacy? I've, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I think, Technology, there's so much technology out there available and there's so many privacy considerations and, and practices. Um, you know, I think, and, and I'd like to hear Maria and Donna, what you think about this. I, when tracking systems were first coming into existence, there was this conversation, should we put the results of the kit analysis on the tracking system, right? And, and then the consensus was, you know, no, you don't really want someone to just log on and get that result without a proper support system around them. So I would think any kind of system that is tracking, you know, was there a hit on the database? Did law enforcement get notified about the hit on the database? As an investigation started, you know, those, was prosecutor um, notified? Those kinds of things would be more internal, um, you know, to law enforcement. I mean, the other reason sometimes there, there's safety considerations about uh, about letting a survivor know the results right of, of the testing too mm-hmm. and Maria and Donna can talk about that but in terms of this is a problem across the country I'll just say this to, to see what is actually happening with these cases so testing a kit is one step and that is really meaningless unless you follow up and you create you do an investigation and hopefully prosecute um, there's very little transparency around that process. In New York City, they have a system where when there is a hit, um, it's called the CODIS Hit Outcome Project. There's an immediate email that goes both to law enforcement and prosecutors saying there was a hit on this case. It's intended, it's created quite a while ago, it was intended to make sure that, you know, that the hit notice at least is happening because you know, we know that, that sometimes those notices don't happen in the way that they should. Um, and that sometimes, honestly, law enforcement in, in many places in the country have let the hit notice just sit on their desk and do nothing with it. There's a terrible case in North Carolina where somebody got murdered because they didn't follow up on a hit. So anyway, that accountability through that process is so important um, because if you're not doing the next steps after testing, really, it's, um, it's kind of empty. And it was a horrible thing to do to a survivor to put them through that and then never follow through. Right. But I think there's two separate things here. One is the individual's information and how that's done. And the other is aggregate. And as a rape crisis center, Marie can tell you this, we spend a lot of time putting data into a system so that it can come out in an aggregate. And we are so careful with that system. We never put in anything that's identifying, you know, um, we put in age, we put in relationship to offender. Um, we don't have an address. We don't have a, We don't have anything that could really trace back to any individual. But what that does is it allows for an aggregate report that says this many people were served. Well, it seems like there could be an aggregate report that says this many kits were collected, this many kits were processed, this many kits had a hit, this many kits were passed on for prosecution. And I wonder if maybe that would, those numbers being transparent would maybe encourage a little more in the way of prosecution. Because that is a problem, I think, throughout the state. I'm sorry, Maria, I think you wanted to talk. Yeah, no, thank you. I I agree with both of you. Um, I think I have... um, I guess, more of a pessimistic perspective on this. While I love the idea, Tracy, um, as uh, someone who's been working in the Chicago area with our multidisciplinary team, so we are part, Resilience is a part of a multidisciplinary team with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, with Chicago Police Department and other service providers, um, where we aim to create a collaborative team that's made up of advocates investigators, prosecutors, um, to better serve these crime victims. Um, but one of the things that we also do throughout this, this project, um, and we're 
we've been running this project for the last few years, um, is that we try to look at data. And my pessimism comes from my existing frustration that um, from, from what we've learned, each one of these entities, law enforcement, the prosecutor's office, um, the civil courts, right? All of those folks all operate using different systems and their systems don't have the ability to communicate with one another. So when I heard you say, wouldn't it be great if we could see what happened with a kit from the moment that the evidence was collected to the last point in that, um, with that case, whatever the outcome was, um, I kind of chuckle because I know that the answer is, well, if that is the, the statistical minority where a case is charged, it's now handed over to the prosecutor's office. We're now changing data systems and these systems don't talk to each other. So even in um, the, the environments where we have relationships, where we are sitting at the table with law enforcement, with prosecutors, um, and they're willing to share data with us as a partner on this project, I'm going to get data from CPD that tells me how many kits were collected, how many are outstanding, et cetera. I'm going to get a different set of data from the Cook County State's Attorney that tells me how many cases were reviewed for prosecution, how many were approved, et cetera. But we still struggle to be able to make the link with what happens with each one of these cases as it moves on to these different entities. So I agree with my colleague here, Elsa, that it's absolutely possible the technology exists, um, but I chuckle because I know that these uh, institutions don't yet have access to those um, to those means of technology that would allow them to track in a really holistic way. I think as a state, we would have to invest in a statewide database yep. that collected yep. it. That I agree with. Um, I will say about the state's attorney and the police, the ability to track across systems gets uh, is enhanced when you have their case level data. So for um, we have seven years and we're in court right now going after more, but we have seven years of felony prosecution data, case level, um, 453 fields from the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Um, one of the things that has to happen, if any of this is ever going to come to fruition, um, is the data has to be removed from them. They, they can collect it, but then they've got to give it up. And because the, one of the big hurdles here is politics. And who's going to be held to account? No one, like the, the police department, the superintendent in Chicago, Kim Fox, the state's attorney, uh, Evans, the chief judge, those are all very political spots, as we all know. And um, none of them have the um, incentive to give us information that will make them look bad, even if they think they look good. Um, so that's where CJP comes in. I agree that I don't think it's, e it's easily done data-wise. Um, but unless we force them, it never will be. That's my perspective. But here, here's the, the danger, if I can caution you. Yes. So one of the risks, I think, with these big um, lofty projects. Oh, no. Around data asks, which are critical for institutional advocacy, right? We want to advocate for our clients, but we also want to improve systems response across the board so that those clients that I never see are still going to get the care that they deserve. Mm -hmm. So institutional advocacy is critical. However, with, um, for example, this very system that we have now, which is something that we advocated for, there are definitely drawbacks with this that we need to be mindful of. One is that our resources are not unlimited. Our state has limited financial resources. And uh, for example, during the time when uh, this, this, um, the kit tracking was, was a bill that we were um, working to get passed, um, we found ourselves frequently asking ourselves and asking our clients, if you had to pick between the choice of knowing exactly where your kit is, but continuing to wait a year, two years to get your results, or the state takes that money and invests in hiring more analysts and, and uh, purchasing better equipment, and instead, you don't know where your kid is, but you get your results back in six months, in five months, in three months, which one would you choose? Um, and as a survivor-centered agency, we really struggled with that because you can imagine majority of our clients that I, I, I don't care. I'd rather have the results sooner. And so while transparency is important um, and doing this, this kind of work to improve systems is part of our mission and critical, just like with everything, there's going to be a drawback to it. And I think that's sometimes what we have to think about is, is 
you know, where's that money coming from? And could it be invested in another way that might serve survivors better? One thing, Tracy, yep, go ahead. I want to just follow yep. up on that a little bit because um, we hear this, you know, a lot across the country where we have, of course, so many needs for survivors that are unmet, especially, you know, three quarters of survivors never make it into the criminal justice process, right? Um, so there's always this sort of research issue. I believe we can do both. <laughs> you know, when I, we're looking at, we're working on a bill in Florida right now and it's, it's 1% of their, their $92 billion budget, you know, or whatever. <laughs> it's like, we can do it. But, um, you know, and so, so Maria, I completely agree with you and that there's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that we did research back in 2016 um, with survivors and practitioners and survivors told us that having information about their kit was really important to them, um, that it was very healing and that not having that information, not having that access was actually detrimental to their well-being. Um, you know, so it was, I, I just wanted to say that because I think it's, it's, it's such a a balance. And, um, I think we can kind of, we can do it all really, you know, <laughs> but also one more thing just about transparency with the systems. Um, you know, the great thing about the tracking systems, if all entities that touch a rape kit actually participate is that you eventually get to see where the gaps and the problems are, you know, you get, you can start to run reports and look at, wait, this community hasn't sent us a rape kit in two years, or, you know, this one's sending us a lot less than they, they should, or they usually, you know, do. So in other states, we've seen these reports where they are like, something's changed in this community and, and they're not sending us, us kits anymore. And then you find out, oh, the sex crimes chief changed and, you know, they're not doing it. So it's kind of just a, a nice tool for that, for that transparency across the state. Yeah, I would say that you have to make sure, especially in Illinois, that um, they're not robbing. Like if you're going for additional services, that they're not taking the money from services that are also vitally needed. Um, I, I remember going back to Rod Bogoyevich, he, he sent something like he sent a half a million dollars or $5 million or whatever it was to the state police crime lab to get um, to eliminate the backlog. And then that money was actually sent to ceasefire. Well, not actually. That same amount, money in that same amount was sent from the state police to ceasefire. Shortly after he did the press conference, said we're going to end the backlog. Forgot about that. Right. Sure. Yeah, it was. So um, you can't always trust these people. Okay. If there was, let's let's um, let's go into um, kind of like, hey, we're gonna. The system is gonna possibly exist. Right, we get to that great day. What part of the system is most important um, to highlight that gets the least amount of sunshine on it now? That you think the sunshine could have the biggest impact in making a change at that critical point? So, I guess I'm going to start with uh, Maria and Donna because you guys are both on the ground in the state doing this, working with survivors. Maria, go ahead. You know, Tracy, I don't think I know the answer to that question. I really don't because it's, you know, I think a loaded question. There's so many elements to this. Um, so I think at this point, I understand that when you're talking about a universal tracking system, you're referring to one that is across um, these various institutions that, of course, all represent law enforcement. But, um, you know, I think for me, I still struggle with the idea that we live in what we call in my world um, a law and order SVU world um, where there actually is so much emphasis placed on evidence collection um, and while so frequently I hear from the Cook County State's Attorney that it, um, you know they don't have to have a kit in order to approve charges on a case, um, I have yet to see many cases approved where we don't have a kit. And so I actually think that some of these really awesome technological advances that we've made in forensics has created this expectations, if not from judges and from juries, that without evidence collection, 
um, a case, uh, a case is not even worth being brought to trial. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that my thought around what we need to improve the system um, starts before that, starts before tracking. I would love that evidence collection isn't this, this invisible barrier for folks to access accountability through criminal justice, um, which of course has, has its limitations and requires when we're talking about sex crimes, which are felony crimes. So the state's attorney's office will have a really high burden to meet in order to bring these cases forward. And yet I've worked with survivors where there is other corroborating evidence that can support the facts of the case. But if they went to a hospital on day nine and they were not eligible for a kit, or maybe they never went to a hospital, too often the thought is, well, there's not enough evidence to corroborate this. So I don't know that I have a magical answer for you because I'd really love to, to flip the script so that there isn't this national conversation where folks think rape, therefore rape kit. I think that that's the assumption that everyone makes. And evidence collection has a specific purpose, but I think we've gone too far with this. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with this one. I, I would agree with you. I think DNA becomes the holy grail of any kind of prosecution. And we have so many cases where even if they went to the hospital immediately, there's really not. DNA because it wasn't, there was no penetration Mm -hmm. or, you know, physical evidence. You don't get the kind of evidence they show on TV. It just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so so you've got this person who, and the victim too has this unrealistic expectation and they don't understand why it's very hard to prosecute a case. Um, And this happens so often with kids where you don't find out about what happened to them until two weeks later or a month later or a year later, it doesn't make it unworthy of prosecuting. It doesn't make it unworthy of pursuing. And that DNA, it's not the most important part of it. And I think finding a way to support people and to educate that this DNA is not, or any other kind of evidence, physical evidence is not the most important part. I wanted to add to that, that the, if you have this data project where you could see, you know, every case, not just the ones with the sexual assault kids, every case, um, we've all seen the funnel, you know, the cases come in, they go through law enforcement and then they go to prosecution. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you can see more about what cases are being taken and what cases are not being taken. And we all know prosecutors only take cases that they think they can win. Mm-hmm. So vast majority of the time, they're not taking even a, a really good acquaintance case. Um, and, and so I think you would just get more data about that that was um, could be really clear and could be used to help give prosecutors the tools and help them change the culture and their thinking around what kind of cases they should be taking. Um, so, you know, I just think that in terms of collecting that data of all cases would just really help inform that process and help reform it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and there is still this onus of blame that falls on a victim of sexual assault that doesn't fall on the victim of a, a car theft or of somebody who broke into your house, all of which you get insurance money for, you know? And when you're raped, you get a rape kit. I, the bonus is not there for the victim. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is more of a universal system that tracks all rapes cases would be helpful. Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. I don't know what, you know, again, to Maria's point, I don't know what a system like that would cost, but, but I think, you know, so many survivors, we hear from them that they never, they never hear about their case after their first time talking to law enforcement, they never ever hear again what happened and getting information about that is really is challenging, but just being able to I think, you know, we all read the report about about CPD and the number of cases that ever get an investigation. At least this would just provide a, you know, sort of that sunlight that you talked about on on the process um, more and and maybe some maybe some accountability, knowing that people are are watching. Okay, so if there is an analysis that this tracking system or data project does 
that is prioritized to help or empower survivors, what is that one analysis? Is it looking at the element of the rape cases that are prosecuted and aren't prosecuted? Right, whether or not there's a rape kit done, is it demographics analysis to look at see if the demographics of the victim and the survivor felt relationship status? Yeah. Is it all that, or is there something we're missing that, from your experience, needs to be on there that is centering the survivors? Yeah, I can I can talk about what I know is currently missing that I frequently ask for um, and have been told that it's it's inaccessible that that data cannot be collected. Did oh. um, something that's top of mind for me is that demographic data, specifically as it relates to identity, Tracy, um, because I think that this is um, a pivotal moment that we're living in, right, on the coattails of the Me Too movement, Times Up, et cetera, where where we are finally um, having conversations about the impact of sexual violence on our communities, and yet our communities still operate within that framework that sexual violence is something that impacts cisgender women that it impacts white women. Um, There's still this narrative of what a perfect victim looks like. And it does not match um, who Donna and I serve and our team serve in in doing this work. Um, So one of the things that's top of mind to me is to get demographic data um, so that we can flip the script. I think specifically around gender identity in a more expansive way um, and sexual orientation because our centers have been set up to serve predominantly cisgender straight women um, and without um, the really important but small projects that have shed critical lights, such as the Forge Forward project um, out of Wisconsin. Um, There's a really critical body of survey that showed the, the experiences of sexual violence in the transgender community and how trans folks experience sexual violence at a disproportionate rate than their heterosexual counterparts. And on average, 35% of transgender folks have experienced sexual violence not once, not twice, but five times or more in their lifetime. And yet, my very center is not set up with a sole focus to these survivors. So I think that um, we're in a better place now to be able to challenge these preconceived notions around what survivorship looks like. And if we had better data around that, it would make it easier for us to shift programming to access funding that allows us to serve survivors from particular demographic groups that we're not currently serving in the ways that we would like to. And what you're saying, Maria, is really interesting too, because we have clients that we've served four, five, seven times. And what you what you see sometimes is a shift where the systems are blaming them. You walk into the hospital and there they are, and the nurse says to them, Oh, what did you do this time? The police say, Oh, I know you. How many times is this going to happen to you? And it implies that they're doing something wrong. And you could never force somebody else to commit a crime against you. It's just a ridiculous thought. But it's still, it's part of what the systems will uphold at times. And these are people who I think in their minds are doing the right thing. I don't think that nurse intends to be hurtful, but she is. And that goes back to, I guess, more sensitivity training. But it is, um, it is so important to understand who a victim is. And that regardless of what they were doing in their life, you're a victim. You don't force somebody else to commit a crime. It, Go ahead, Elsa. I was just, you know, a lot of it comes back to, for me to um, training, right? But also picking the right people for these jobs. We can't control the nurse situation as much in the hospital's response, unfortunately. But you know, we can create a better law enforcement response. And there are a couple ways to do that. And one is to make sure, um, you know, that there is a dedicated unit at CPD that specializes in investigating and responding to sexual assault. Um, It's always better to have a unit where you, you know, have, I mean, even just physically being in the same space, right? But have a chain of command in the unit, accountability and transparency all the way up the the you know, to the to the chief. Um, I, I know specifically more about New York City because I, I do a lot of work 
with NYPD, we do a case review. Um, local advocates coming into a case review, I would highly suggest that um, for Chicago because we you- actually have one of those in Chicago as well. Ilsa. Oh, good. So you, you know, doing case review, we we've been able to identify, like you said, populations that are not being um, served correctly, um, even all the way down to terminology. Looking at the files, and it's like, well, this detective is using this language, and you know that is really harmful or hurtful, or, or you know, you can get to see why people disengage and all of that. Um, so the case review, but just having those dedicated and trained um, folks in that unit who want to be there who want to be a sex crimes detective, you know, unfortunately all too often people end up in that, that job and they, and they don't really want to do it. Um, and it's not an easy job. So, you know, just thinking about how can we just for the survivors who do make it to the system, you know, create a, a better response to them. That is, that is, that is humane. Right, I'm going to ask, one question that's off the script, but it's come to my mind um, from something um, you all just talked about. Um, we started our Justice Media Project back in 2011. And since that, well, we started scraping media content. And we had uh, probably 40 or 50 volunteers come through the first couple of years, and they were hand coding articles. And um, as best as we tried, we couldn't get, uh, we had one of the categories was GLBTQ and violence or crime. And, you know, we looked at the data and that category was just empty, empty, empty. And we had a meeting of our community advisory board and some other people involved in the organization. And we were talking about it. And Lisa Gilmore from the center on Halstead at the time laughed. And I said, well, what's so funny? She's like, oh no, it's really nice of you to try this, but I could have told you, you're going to come up with nothing. I'm like, really? It's like, yeah, first of all, they don't cover it. And second of all, they talk in coded language. That unless you train your people reviewing the media articles, they're not going to feel comfortable doing it. And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? What, like, okay, I, I fully, I'm fully believe you. What, what is coded language that you're talking about? She goes, well, it'll be man dressed like woman assaulted or murdered in a hotel. And she's like, well, that to, uh, that to me, I read that and that's a GLBTQ-related crime. Um, I know we've, we've gotten asked this before in, um, in our transparency work when we brought in to talk to people about um, gender identity data. And I'm like, well, yes, we want to advocate for that, but the systems don't collect that information. Uh, does the CPD, from my information, they don't do, does the CPD or any of the justice agencies in Illinois that you two have been working with, do they collect any information like that? So, so to my knowledge, they collect um, binary gender information. Yep. So male and female are the only options. And then they collect things and you can check out right now. You could go to the Cook County State's Attorney's sexual assault dashboard and you can find information there on um, race and ethnicity, age. Those data points are there. Um, and I have, like I said, I've, I've been asking, okay, you're already collecting demographic information. I think it would be important to also include here information around gender identity that's expansive um, and sexual orientation. Um, and at least I can confirm that to this point, that information is not collected and it doesn't sound like there are plans to start collecting that information. Me, yes, and to get that, change put in you have to that to me would have to be on the police departments right because they're the ones that usually are starting to create the record um, and i know from our litigation and we had a sexual assault task force back when Sharmili was running we had big daniels that used that ended up becoming resilience um and they fought like the dickens to stop it that um the cook county state attorney's database connects to clear connects to the CPD's database and they can view it. And I think that's, so for their gender information, I think it's just, and when it comes from the CPD, that's just now how they get it, right? So I think um, I think if they start talking to people and engaging with survivors, they could collect that information. Um, but I'm sure most of that is driven by the CPD. Um, and I'd love to see that change. I couldn't imagine what her Herculean event it would take Herculean lift it would be to get them to do that. Um, 
There have to be a ton of training. You imagine the the terminology issues and uh, uh, that. I, I think that would be huge. <laughs> you know, we um, we did a report with Don Dalton when she was at the Battered Women's Network and Shamili when she was running Resilience. We looked at domestic homicides. We looked at uh, case statuses of uh, sexual assault cases over a 10-year period. I think it was 2000 to 2009. And, you know, we found all kinds of open cases. And then we found something that neither Shamili or Don knew. Um, statistically, they didn't have the numbers. We found out they were marking 16% of the cases over that decade on average unfounded for sexual assaults. And then we, because we're a FOIA, this is what we do. We just send in FOIAs every day. We send in a FOIA for their training manuals and their guidelines and policies for marking a sexual assault unfounded. None. 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 I was going to say that that's not uncommon, unfortunately. Um, But the FBI definition is very clear. It's very, very clear about it. They haven't trained on the FBI definition. They haven't trained on anything. They just know. Right. That you know, you get a badge, you know automatically whether someone's telling you become a lie detector. Right. I'm poisoned. So I just I always question the data, especially the yeah. stuff that comes out of the CPD, because they don't train. And I might be city biased. Um, and Donna, I think, can probably help us with this. I'm not sure if the CPD is not training on these things, our smaller jurisdictions in the rest of the state better at getting trained on things like that. No. <laughs> But Tracy, I think in addition to this, it's it's not just a data issue, and it, it is a data, data, data issue. But in addition to that, when you think about um, violence that is targeted towards folks from lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community, queer communities, we're also talking about additional charges, potential for additional charges that are being missed because so often the violence that the folks in these communities experience are a result of a hate crime. Mm -hmm. So we're not just missing. It's not just a data point that's not out there. That should be. Um, But in addition to that, it means that we don't have the full picture. The prosecutor's office doesn't have a full picture of the totality of the charges that are potentially available to them based on the facts of the case. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an injustice to those survivors. Absolutely. And until you have, um, yeah, no doubt. And that isn't ever going to get recorded properly until we have a very well-trained, um, open-minded police force, because people bring in their own biases, right? And I don't have the statistic, but I'm sure we know somewhere how, what percentage of the population um, hates one group or another group and why they do. And that same population percentage of population is probably in policing and probably in prosecutors offices and probably in the courts. Um, But yeah, I agree with you. That's a, it's a double whammy. So we have a question from one of our, um, one of our top, uh, what I would call top volunteers. I hope all our other volunteers are not mad for me saying Schlan's one of the top ones, Uh, but it's, for Maria, if you can, and I would like you to talk about this, I should have asked about this as a follow-up, because this wasn't the case when we had our sexual assault task force 10 years ago. Uh, we were pushing them to do this. Um, can you speak more about the case review you mentioned and what actually happens in that in Chicago? Because I know we tried to push them to do it because we found out Charles Ramsey was having it done in Philly. So if you could yeah, sure. a little more so- about that. Absolutely. So, um, like I said, uh, resilience is a part of the multidisciplinary team in the Chicago area. And I know that there are multidisciplinary teams or MDT teams, as they're called, um, throughout um, Illinois in different communities. Those are often a result of federal, it's a like federal funding project um, that's collaborated again between police officers, prosecutors, um, and and local law enforcement. So for us in Chicago, what it looks like is that once a month, um, all of the partners within that group um, gather and we will review currently our policies that we review six cases um, and we talk about those in depth. So we're at the table for three, four hours um, and the prosecutor's office will present the facts of the case. We'll usually have the detective that investigated the case to add any additional commentary, anything that might be missing essentially from the report. And we currently focus on cases where either charge 
charges were never brought forward or um, the state's attorney's office rejected charges um, or CI did. So continued the investigation, meaning not enough information yet to make a decision. Um, so we review those cases and we have all these folks from various disciplines at the table. And so um, through this closed group where we have relationships with one another, which I think is the number one benefit from this project is the relationships that we've been able to build. They've really, really favored the survivors that we serve. If I can call a detective that I know um, is going to operate from a survivor-centered lens. Um, but through the case reviews, prosecutors will review the facts of the case. Detectives will add anything that they'd like to add. And then we all ask each other questions. Essentially, the idea is, what did we miss? What could we have done better, either by way of is there any leaf left unturned that would help um, the prosecutor's office be able to charge this case, approve charges on the case? Um, or is there anything that we can do to support this person? Sometimes it's clear to everyone in the room, there's not enough evidence to corroborate the crime. And that's a tough lesson for an advocate to learn and to sit with and be okay with. But it is true, understanding the burden that the prosecutor's office office has in bringing forth these felony crimes, um, they have to be able to meet the burden of proof. And so sometimes that evidence simply isn't there. But then we have conversations about, okay, what can we do to support the survivor? It sounded like there was um, a safety need um, because this person is experiencing um, unstable housing right now. So how can we connect them to the advocacy agencies who can help provide additional services? But in addition to that, sometimes we hear the facts of the case and we go, hey, what about this? You know, or I know that you were looking at this case from the lens of force or threat of force, which is a standard in Illinois law for sex crimes. Often we start with, is there force or threat of force? If not, then there's other elements that can be considered. And those are really limited, right? So unable to consent, such as in drug facilitated sexual assault cases, age-based, et cetera. Um, but sometimes the prosecutor's office reviewed a case from one lens and we say, wait, wait, wait. Well, didn't we say that this person was, you know, had, had taken, you know, their Ambien right before this happened. So they're not in a place where they might be able to consent based on how that impacts them or something. So once every now and then we find something that sounds like, did we, did we explore that? And we may suggest that our law enforcement friends go back. Um, and do some further investigation or that the prosecutor's office re-review a case. So it's not a space, Tracy, for us to change the outcome of cases, although sometimes that's happened and that's a really pleasant and awesome surprise. But the best thing about it is that it's a place where we identify trends um, we have come up with policy initiatives that we would like to move forward with. There's one currently that the state's attorney's office is pushing where they would like to add the element of coercion to the sexual assault sex crime de uh, definition. Coercion isn't currently there. If somebody commits sex crime by way of coercion, that's not part of the sex crime statute. But because of that, the state's attorney's office actually has now introduced this bill. We've also identified training needs through that, policy changes. Um, a big one that seems so silly is we learned through doing these case reviews over the course of the last several years that often law enforcement does not have the documentation from the evidence collection kit when they're doing their investigation which as Donna can tell you is totally bananas because when a survivor goes to the hospital and has that evidence collection done, yes, those samples that are collected will be important in the case, but that doctor, that nurse also takes incredible detailed information about the facts of the case, about injury that was uh, visible to them, about marks that they saw, anything else. So there's a lot of really juicy written information that sometimes me as an advocate, I was in the room with that patient. I know these questions were asked, but now I'm hearing the facts of the case and I'm like, how come you all didn't know that? So we actually realized that because kids get packaged up, right? And they go to the warehouse and they sit at the warehouse for a while, um, that law enforcement actually was investigating some of these crimes without that information because Jesus. that kid is somewhere else, right? So that's something that we're currently working on is what can we do to make sure that law enforcement gets a copy of all this detailed information that will aid them um, in their investigation. So the case review has been really, really beneficial for us, I think, as an advocacy community um, to build relationships with these systems and to assist in um, identifying gaps for 
any one of us where we can all do better to serve. I, I don't mean to be the curmudgeon here, but it, it really kind of blows me away that you just said the detectives are investigating cases without getting all the relevant information that would help them investigate the case. Like my view, when I hear that is like, how are you still employed? <laughs> like, shouldn't you knew there was a rape kit yeah. done? You would think there was notes. You'd go confirm whether there are notes or not. And if there are, you would get them because that's your job. It's just, I mean, I, I hear you. I think it's a gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the process that simply hasn't been identified up until now. Now, I can't tell you how, um, but I, I don't know that it's fair to t- place that blame solely on our investigative partners when um, the evidence techs didn't have a practice to share that information because it literally goes in a box. The box is sealed. So it's in a sealed box. And we said, well, hey, that was silly. We shouldn't do that anymore. Right. <laughs> but chain of custody is important. We want all the documentation mm-hmm. to sit with the samples. So I think that we've had the opportunity here. And again, this is something we're currently working on. What can we do to create a better system where either a copy is provided to law enforcement, um, to that responding officer, and that responding officer hands it over to the investigator, or it's scanned into a system that law enforcement has access to. So, I mean, when we've raised this, um, some of those detectives, and, and I, I try to be fair, I try to be, you know, we have our concerns with law enforcement. We also do have a handful of incredible allies that want this to, to go better. And some of those folks were saying, please give me that information. I need it. And so we're working to address the process and the system that kept them from getting that. And this is a piece of the system that would not be that expensive to fix. It's a couple minutes at a copier or making something that has a duplicate that you can tear off. You know, it's just not that huge an issue to fix this one. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, I want to thank all of you for participating. I really appreciate it. It was definitely a learning experience for me. I hope for our audience. Um, You left me a little frustrated there. I understand. I'm glad you're working on that, but 2021 and they can't get this copy of the thing that's sealed in the box that they need just think they would have found a way to settle it without having to have advocates tell them or push them to find a way. Okay. Well, Ilsa, Donna, Maria, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, We'll be back on Friday. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you all. Thank Thank you you for your time.